Hi, welcome to the session. In this podcast, we will cover venous thromboembolism in gynecological surgery. This story begins in 1858, when Virchow first reported the development of thromboembolism as a consequence of three main factors, hypercoagulability, venous stasis, and vessel wall injury. Patients undergoing gynecological surgery are predisposed to thromboembolism because of alteration in one or more of these factors. Perioperative and postoperative immobility can adversely affect the drainage of blood from the lower extremity, promoting the development of a DVT. Pelvic masses, a gravid uterus, surgically induced hematomas, or lymphocysts can also lead to venous stasis. Additionally, vessel wall injury can result from surgical dissection or malignant growth of a tumor into vascular tissues. All of these factors contribute to the increased risk of thromboembolism following gynecological surgery. Now, here's an important note. Once a thrombus is formed, the risk of pulmonary embolism depends on the location of the clot. Now, in a prospective study of close to 400 gynecological oncology patients, 17% of subjects developed a DVT. 85% of these thrombi were located in the calf veins, but nearly one-third of these calf thrombi actually lysed by themselves, and 65% did not propagate during the post-op surveillance interval. Only 4% of those in the calf propagated to the proximal leg veins, and an additional 4% became symptomatic pulmonary emboli. So these findings actually emphasize that calf vein thrombosis, although a frequent event, is actually of minimal clinical significance. Moreover, 40% of the gynecologic oncology patients who developed a post-op symptomatic PE, here's the catch, had no evidence of a DVT in the legs. This emphasizes that pelvic vein thrombi also pose a high risk of pulmonary embolism. Prevention of PE secondary to proximal vein thrombosis also may prove difficult because half of these thrombi are clinically silent. Because of the devastating nature of a PE, it's important to stratify patients according to their risk status before surgery. Patients should be classified pre-op into one of four risk categories to determine the appropriate thromboprophylactic regimen. VTE risk is determined based on the procedure type and duration as well as the patient's age and the presence of additional risk factors. Not only do patients have different risk factors, but also not all prophylactic regimens are appropriate or effective in certain risk groups. The proper risk classification is therefore important in order to prescribe the best prophylactic regimen. Additionally, there are certain risk factors that are associated with an especially high risk of a venous thromboembolic event. A retrospective review of over 1,800 patients identified the following as high-risk factors. The first is age greater than 60. The second is presence of cancer. And the third is a history of prior DVT. These patients are at especially high risk of perioperative venothromboembolic events and combination thromboprophylactic regimens are advised. 
Now, women with two or three of these factors have a 3.2% incidence of VTE compared with an incidence of 0.6% in women who have none or just one of these risk factors. Okay, when we come back, let's take a look at the specific mechanisms we have in place for prevention of VTE after gynecological surgery. DVT formation can be reduced by a number of prophylactic methods. There are two main types of prophylactic options, mechanical and pharmacological methods. Now, before we get into the specific types, a quick word about these options. A combined regimen of medical and mechanical prophylaxis may improve efficacy, especially in the highest risk patients. Now, although limited data exists to support this approach in gynecological surgery, studies from the general surgical and neurosurgical literature do suggest significant benefit from a combined regimen. Additionally, until more evidence is accumulated, the college states that patients undergoing laparoscopic surgery should be stratified by risk category and provided prophylaxis similar to patients undergoing laparotomy based on the specific risk that they fall into. A special exception are laparoscopic procedures that are brief and in other words are minor less than 30 minutes and the patients are not greater than 40 years of age. Okay, now back to our options. Mechanical methods reduce venous stasis and may promote endogenous fibrinolysis. Pharmacological methods prevent clot formation by affecting different points on the clotting cascade. Cost, benefit, risk, and feasibility of each of these methods must be weighed in determining the appropriate prophylaxis for an individual patient. Let's talk about graduated compression stockings, or GCS, next. All right, so here's another clinical pearl. Most post-op thrombi occur in the capacitance veins of the legs and develop within 24 hours of surgery. In addition to early post-op ambulation and elevating the foot of the bed, graduated compression stockings, or GCS, prevent pooling of blood in the calves. A Cochrane review of randomized controlled trials did find a 50% reduction in DVT formation with graduated compression stockings, although they were more effective when combined with a second prophylactic method. Low cost and simplicity are the main advantages of using these kind of stockings, but correct fit is essential as tight or inappropriately fitted stockings can actually cause an increase in venous stasis by acting as a tourniquet effect at the knee or at the mid-thigh. All right, while GCS are pretty easy and low-tech, what about intermittent pneumatic compression, or IPC? Well, IPC devices regularly compress the calf with an inflatable pneumatic sleeve, thereby reducing venous stasis. When used during and after major gynecological surgery, IPC devices are just as effective as low-dose unfragginated heparin or low-molecular-weight heparin in reducing DVT incidence. Now, most studies have included 
affected a small number of patients and are underpowered to actually prove efficacy in lowering PE incidence or mortality. Nonetheless, the value of IPE devices surrounding gynecological surgery is well established. In a study of patients with gynecological malignancies undergoing surgery, IPC devices were placed intraoperatively and continued for five days. IPC use was associated with a threefold reduction in venothromboembolic events. All right, next, let's cover low-dose unfractionated heparin, and then we'll cover low-molecular weight heparin as well. All right, let's get into low-dose unfractionated heparin. This is the most extensively studied method of thromboprophylaxis. Now, when administered subcutaneously starting two hours before surgery and continued every eight to 12 hours post-op, numerous controlled trials have found that low-dose unfractionated heparin was effective in reducing DVT. Two large meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials in general surgery patients showed a two-thirds reduction in fatal PE with the use of low-dose unfractionated heparin every eight hours over placebo or no prophylaxis. Now, patients undergoing major gynecological surgery for benign indications also benefit from low-dose unfractionated heparin in a pre-op dose and post-op every 12 hours. This dosing schedule was found to be ineffective, however, with gynecological cancer patients. But the administration of 5,000 units of heparin beginning two hours pre-op and continuing every eight hours post-op did provide some effective VTE prophylaxis in women at high risk who also had gynecological malignancies. All right, now like everything else, there's pros and cons to everything. Well, advantages of low-dose unfractionated heparin include its very well-studied efficacy and, of course, its low cost. But a major concern with periop low-dose unfractionated heparin is the increased intraoperative and post-op bleeding complications. While surgical blood loss does not seem to be effective by the pre-op use of low-dose unfractionated heparin, an increase in post-op bleeding has been noted, specifically regarding wound hematomas. Additionally, use of more than four days warrants monitoring of platelets because up to 6% of patients will experience heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. So let's say that again. With low-dose unfractionated heparin, up to 6% of patients will experience heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. All right, as we wrap up the podcast, let's talk about low molecular weight heparin next. Advantages of low molecular weight heparin include greater bioavailability and once daily dosing. These benefits result from a longer half-life, more predictable pharmacokinetics, and equivalent efficacy when compared with prophylactic dosing of low-dose unfractionated heparin. Low molecular weight heparin has more anti-factor 10A and less anti-thrombin activity than low-dose unfractionated heparin. This may decrease medical bleeding and wound hematoma formation. However, low molecular weight heparin is more expensive than low-dose unfractionated heparin. Heparin-induced thrombocytopenia is also very rarely observed with low molecular weight heparin, and screening for that is not necessary. 
as always, we have to take a look at the data. A Cochrane review of randomized controlled trials in gynecological patients undergoing major surgery found low molecular weight heparin and low dose unfractionated heparin equally useful in preventing DVT. Effective VTE prophylaxis was seen with the use of pre-op and daily post-op low molecular weight heparin when compared with IPC devices. Remember, that's intermittent pneumatic compression devices. All right, now that we've covered graduated compression stockings, intermittent pneumatic compression devices, and pharmacological methods, the question is, well, what about duration of prophylaxis? Well, duration of prophylaxis varies depending on the risk factors. Major risk factors for the development of a clinical VTE include age greater than 60, cancer, prior VTE in the patient, and prolonged surgery or bed rest. 40% of patients with cancer who develop a VTE will do so more than 21 days after surgery. So that's a clinical pearl. A placebo-controlled trial of low molecular weight heparin administered for one week versus four weeks post-op showed a 60% reduction in VTE with the four weeks of treatment and no increase in bleeding or thrombocytopenia. So patients at the highest risk for VTE may benefit from this prolonged low molecular weight heparin prophylaxis for the first four weeks after surgery. All right. As we wrap up the podcast, a quick word once again about the use of combination mechanical and pharmacological prophylaxis. Remember, we touched on that a little bit earlier in the session. No data exists in the gynecological literature on the benefits of using a combined approach. However, possessing two or three identified risk factors for failing intermittent pneumatic compression, and remember, those were age greater than 60 cancer or a prior VTE history places patients at a specific highest risk category for the development of a VTE. So as a result, the use of a combination approach possesses inherent appeal because it can reduce both hypercoagulability and venous stasis in the highest risk surgical patients. So although data from randomized trials in gynecological surgery are lacking, a combination approach is reasonable in the highest risk patients, and this practice is endorsed by the American College of OBGYN. Well, that wraps up our podcast covering venous thromboembolism in gynecological surgery. Data for this podcast came from the American College of OBGYN on venous thromboembolism and pulmonary emboli, as well as the American College of Chest Physicians. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.